Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, May 10th, 2013. Yeah, I'll be enjoying my 45th birthday tomorrow. Should be fun. We have planned an outing. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, one of the problems that we face in the church is that we have people who are arguing within Christianity who sound, well, more like atheists. And and what I mean by that is that, well, they're really not all that interested in telling us what Scripture believes. Instead, they spend a lot of time telling us how Scripture doesn't believe what it says. In fact, it must say something else. And as a result of it, well, we're not getting the truth from these people. But the thing is, is that these are people who are arguing against the Scriptures from within visible Christianity. This is not a good thing. In fact, when somebody is doing that, they are behaving like an unbeliever. Scripture reveals to us that unbelievers are ones who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Their reason is darkened. Um, they, They are born dead in trespasses and sins. And so, in other words, the, the last person who is capable of making a sound judgment call regarding who is and who isn't God would be an atheist or a pagan or you know, somebody whose reason is darkened. But the thing is, is that you'll notice something about the way pagans argue. The way they argue is, is that, oh, yeah, man, it's just silly that, you know, you believe in, in the literal six-day creation, you know, because science has proven this, and, and psychology's proven that, and that's just not the, you know, you get what I'm saying. And, you know, and of course, some people are a little bit more sophisticated, you know, for instance, the new atheists. Uh, but the, the argument's still pretty much the same. What the, the thing that they can't can't stand the thing that really just irks them is well um god's word 
it, that really just frosts them. And, and the reason why is because of who the author is. It's very clear, according to Jesus and according to other passages of Scripture, that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's theonoustos. And since people are born dead in trespasses and sins and at war with God, and see, that's the key, they're at war with God, they're not interested in what God says. Yeah, like not at all. In fact, they are, you know, quite opposed to what God says. It's not like, you know, uh, unbelievers take a passive role. You know, they're going to they're going to they're gonna claim that they're Switzerland, you know, you know. So you got all these pagans running around going, you know, we're going to claim neutrality on this one. You know, yeah, we understand the new atheists are over there. And then you got, you know, these Christians over here. But we're going to we're going to play the role of Switzerland. You know, yeah, this is no man's land. You know, we, we're not going to pick a side in this war. Yeah, that doesn't happen. Everybody is born on a side, and the side that they're born on is not God's side. They're actually born in a, you know on the side of the devil and in opposition to God. Now, this this is a point that I want to bring up here. Now, kind of as I'm thinking through what we heard this week from Rob Bell, and one of the things we're going to be hearing today is that there are people within the visible church who are effectively arguing as if they are pagans, and what they're doing is making void the Word of God, making void God's Word. And so I want to read a passage of scripture to you just to kind of start things off. It's from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15. If you have your Bible, in fact, I need to pull this up on my computerized Bible because I was looking at it in, a, uh, in another program. And we'll kind of unpack this here. Matthew, chapter 15, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 9, but there's more to this. In fact, this is uh, one of the passages I'm going to be talking on in uh, Montana. But here's what it says. The Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Now, this is important. And the reason why this is important is because back when Jesus had his earthly ministry, uh, you know, when he was training the disciples, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, casting out demons, raising the dead, preaching the gospel, proclaiming the kingdom, you know, things like that. Um, one of the, th- you know, what we see here is, is that, well, Jesus got the attention of the uh, the religious authorities of his day. And so a contingent of Pharisees and scribes came from Jerusalem to, well, you know, where Jesus was in the greater vicinity of Galilee. And in order to take a look at this Jesus guy, pay attention to what he's saying and, you know, offer their um, religious, ex- well, it, since they're experts, you know, in, in the law and experts, you know, in, in, you know, God's word to offer their expert opinion on, you know, Jesus. Right. And so it says the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? And you, what's the tradition? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of complicated, but the, uh, uh, the Hebrew uh, term that is uh, that this is referring to is the halakha, and the halakha, you know, these these are traditions, man-made traditions. Okay, the idea here is the Pharisees had created a fence around the Torah uh, via the halakha, and uh, the halakha were these man-made ideas that if you kept these man-made well traditions, then you would never break the Torah. That was the idea, and so and here here's the beef. Um, for they, that's Jesus' disciples, do not wash their hands when they eat. 
And Jesus answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Now, Jesus isn't talking about you know, tradition in the sense of you know people who light candles, who maybe cross themselves or things like that. That's not the tradition he's going after. In fact, it's something quite different. Here's what Jesus said. For God commanded, honor your father and your mother. Now, that's weird, isn't it? Where do we find the commandment, honor your father and mother? Well, if we find that in the book of Exodus. Who was written by whom? Moses, right? Right. Well, here... Jesus is making clear that what's written in the Torah, written by Moses, really doesn't have its origin in the mind of Moses. Instead, it says that God commanded. God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, but you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me or received from me is now given to God. Well, he need not honor his father. And for the sake of your tradition, you have made void, or as Mark says, you have nullified the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Making void the word of God. Who was it that was making void the word of God? Was it atheists? No. Was it uh, rank-and-file agnostics? Nope. Was it followers of Baal? Nope. Molech? Nope. Asherah? Nope. Who was it that was making void God's word, nullifying the word of God? Answer? The premier religious authorities of Jesus' day. They were nullifying the word of God and basically saying, yeah, listen, you don't need to obey God's commands. No, 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 you need to obey ours. And see, that's what happens, isn't it? People who attack God's word and nullify it, make it void, you know what they do in the church? They replace God's word with the commandments of men, with man-made traditions, with man-made notions, with man-made ideas. We've seen this play out in church history time and again. And now we are to a point where, you remember that thing called the Reformation? Yeah, you know, it just, you know, I know you've probably heard of it, but I mean, most people who attend evangelical churches if they were to ask, if you were to ask them something to the effect of hey have you started praying the rosary and do you pray to the saints and have you said a hail mary and and things like that they would they would react in repulsed shock <laughs> what do you oh, those are man made right mm-hmm. yeah the problem is that we now live in a day where evangelicals heirs of the Protestant Reformation, they have as much man-made doctrines and theologies, and just like the Roman Catholic Church makes void and nullifies the Word of God for the sake of their ideas, their theology, their doctrine. But see, Scripture is clear, and Jesus is clear, that God is the one speaking to us in His Word. And you, when you nullify God's word, well, see, the important word there is God's. God's word is not just some title we slap on the Bible. The Bible truly is 
God's word. He truly reveals himself in it. He truly has spoken the truth in it. And when you nullify and cast aside God's word and replace it with your own doctrines and your own ideas, well, what you're really doing is casting aside aside God himself and what he has revealed. And when you do that and you replace it with your own doctrine, you run afoul of, well, Jesus and you're guilty of the same sin that the Pharisees and the scribes committed. You know, think about it. All right, what we're going to do today, let's we're going to switch gears here. What we're going to do today is uh first and foremost, kind of start off with um kind of a little bit of something light <laughs> if you can call it light. Um and and here's the idea. You know that Sunday is coming up, right? And Sunday is an important important um holiday in um in church world, and well, it's not really a church holiday, is it? But uh, Monday is the recognition of Mother's Day, Mother's Day, and um, I am very proud to announce that uh, the church where I am uh, teaching, where I attend, and I'm a member, um, that we will not be performing um, um, our own version of Mommy Rhapsody. Now, if you don't know what Mommy Rhapsody is, I strongly recommend... <laughs> Well, <laughs> I got to be careful on this recommendation. If you're not sure what Mommy Rhapsody is, um, go to YouTube.com and type in Mommy Rhapsody. And you know what you're going to find? Yeah, no joke. You are going to find page after page of YouTube video submissions from churches who, um, as part of their what they do on an annual basis there is uh, the moms get together and they perform Mommy Rhapsody. In fact, if you've never heard Mommy Rhapsody, uh, let me introduce you to Mommy Rhapsody from the Stevens Creek Church, I think out in Stevens Creek, but uh, you know, it's in Georgia. Yeah, this is their rendition of Mommy Rhapsody. We will not be performing this at our church on Sunday, and I hope wherever you attend, that's the same for you as well. But here, listen in.
a guitar solo played on a broom. Yeah, you should really see these ladies. I mean, they were doing laundry and ironing and stuff. Yeah, Mommy Rhapsody. It's, let's listen a little bit more. Yeah, we will not be performing this at our church. is the function of something like this during a church service. I'm a little confused about that. This is so inspiring, don't you think? You know, because I really like thinking about Freddie Mercury when I'm at church. Touching, yeah, it's just... And, of course, they're back to folding laundry and ironing now. Yeah, there you go. See, now you can't, you can't say that you've never heard Mommy Rhapsody. Unfortunately, I subjected you to the entire thing. But the idea is this, is that, um, like I've asked, what exactly does a performance of Mommy Rhapsody, what function does it play in a church 
service. Yeah, I can't think of any valid <clears throat> function that it would have, at least when it comes to, you know, long gospel, sin and grace, the word of God, uh, you know, Lord's Supper, baptism. No, no, it doesn't fit in any of those categories whatsoever. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure what the function is. But again, I'm very pleased to announce that our church, the, the church that I attend, we will not be um, performing. In fact, we never have performances uh, during church. We have way more important things that we've got to get to. You know, things like proclaiming the gospel, um, you know, hearing and proclaiming God's word, confronting sinners with their sins, uh, comforting them with the good news that Christ died on the cross for their sins. Um, in fact, this is going to sound like heretical, but trust me, it's not. Um, our pastor, um, he will not be recognizing Mother's Day. Um, the, in fact, he won't even be preaching on mother about mothers on Mother's Day because, you see, we have a lectionary and the gospel reading for this coming Sunday has nothing to do with moms. And so, you, that not that weird? I mean, so, you know, it's, I mean, that's the thing. It's, we've got really important things to do. And I don't know if you know this, but since Mother's Day doesn't have its origin in the word of God, although moms are mentioned and, you know, the vocation of mother is highly exalted in scripture, although that's the case, um, I, our, the church I attend, we don't feel any particular compulsion to have to recognize Mother's Day in church. I mean, you can recognize it at home. In fact, we recommend, uh, you know, hey, take your mom out for lunch after church. Great thing to do. Uh, but we've got way more important business to tend to than Mother's Day um, at um, our church, and um, we will not be performing Mommy Rhapsody. So I know it seems heretical, right? But get this. Um, Christian history... You know, M Mother's Day didn't exist at the beginning of Christian history. Um, in fact, for millennia, the Christian church has done just fine without Mother's Day. Isn't that weird? Because it's kind of a new thing. You know, if you look at the grand sweep of the 2,000-year history of Christianity, um, Mother's Day actually wasn't started as a Christian holiday. It was kind of one of those, you know, national recognition type things. And so um, we don't feel any particular need to switch over to the predominant, you know, the greater culture's expectations. Instead, feel that it, we got to stick to the plan, got to Got, you know, we got disciples that need to be discipled. We got Christ's sheep that needs to be that need to be fed. You know, things of that nature. So you know, the, and and you know, again, I'm very proud to announce that we will not be um, performing Mommy Rhapsody, nor will we be um, hearing a message about Mother's Day at the church that I attend. How about your church? Kind of an interesting question. And by the way, um, we're equal opportunity folks here at the church that I'm a member at. When Father's Day rolls around, same thing. Yeah, we won't be pausing for Father's Day. We've got more important things to tend to. Again, what 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 will they be doing at your church this Sunday? Will they be proclaiming Christ or performing um, Mommy Rhapsody and talking about uh, diapers and, and ironing and things like that? You know, focusing on something other than Jesus. Provocative question, to be sure. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. We're going to go 
back in time a couple of months to Lent and to Easter. I'll explain on the other side of the break. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hello, my name is Joel Osteen, and I want to tell you about my latest book, Every Day is Friday. I really don't know why I wrote this one, though. I was trying to come up with some ideas, and it turns out I don't have any. So that's when I started thinking of things people really liked. I was thinking of all sorts of stuff, but none of the things I was thinking were really working. My first title was, Every Day is Marshmallow Covered Rainbows, but my mama told me it stunk. And then I had one of those ideas because somebody on the TV said they like Friday. I mean, what's not to like about Friday? There's a party every night. If your boss isn't all strict and stuff, you could be casual at work. And they's always having that 25 cent wing night down at Bubba Wings on Tuesdays. Turns out there are some people who don't seem to like the whole every day is Friday thing and have made some not so nice remarks. They keep on saying things like, but Saturday is so much better. With every day being Friday, I don't ever get to sleep in or have a day off. Well, we here at Lakewood have a name for these kinds of people, and they are close-minded haters. Hey, that's my line! Uh, security, get this crazy person out of here. I'll show you who's crazy! your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And 
we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Mark your calendar now for April 25, 26, and 27, 2014. You see, it's not too soon to be making your plans, saving your pennies, and asking for work off April 25, 26, and 27 of 2014 for the 11th annual Branson Worldview Weekend. This past year, we had people from all over the country and actually from other countries join us in the beautiful rolling hills of Branson, Missouri. So if you're looking to attend the premier Understanding the Times Biblical Worldview Weekend, then join us April 25, 26, and 27 of 2014 for the Branson Worldview Weekend. It's for all ages. Children 11 and under are free. We also have a group rate and a family rate. The Worldview Weekends have been around since 19. 93. So we're one of the oldest biblical worldview conferences in America. So mark your calendar now for Branson, Missouri, April 25, 26, and 27, 2014. Warning, uh, church is not for entertainment. Church is for, well, being discipled and fed. It's for the Word of God and for holy things. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Now, from time to time here at Fighting for the Faith, we travel back in time. And I prefer the, uh, the well, when we travel back in time, I prefer to use the DeLorean from the Back to the Future movies rather than the TARDIS from the Doctor Who series. You know, I, I call me old school. But today we're going to actually be traveling back in time, not very far back, so we will be... We will not be employing the, uh, the well the services of either uh, the DeLorean or the TARDIS today. So I, I just want to let you know that. But we're going to go back just a little bit. Uh, remember Lent? It wasn't all that long ago. Remember the Easter season? It really wasn't all that long ago. In fact, we're at, if you are at, if you attend a liturgical church, we are at the tail end of the Easter season right now. Seventh Sunday in Easter is coming up this Sunday, and then next Sunday not not this one now, but next Sunday is Pentecost Sunday. And uh, that's where we celebrate speaking in tongues. And <laughs> no, don't, no, that's not exactly. <laughs> that's not it at all. Anyway, uh, but <clears throat> just I couldn't resist. But um, we're going to go back a little bit. And the reason why we're going to go back a little bit is because I want you to listen 
to the uh, the postmodern emergent uh, Peter Rollins and his suggestion that he made for those of uh, in the uh, postmodern emergent communities for what they should do for Lent. I mean, you know that during Lent, um, it's a common practice, especially in Roman Catholic circles, that you give something up. You know, um, this really, for for all intents and purposes, is a misuse of Lent. Uh, the idea was is that Lent used to be a, a time, a season where people would fast. It was, you know, and so it's turned into, well, you know, listen, fasting is really difficult. So you know what I'll do? I'll give up smoking in that last two days. You know, stuff like that. And so uh, Peter uh, Peter Rollins of the Emergent Church came up with an idea of something that people should give up for Lent. And you know what they should give up? belief in god no kidding he suggested atheism for lent <laughs> i you just got to hear it and then when we're done with that we'll do a quick joel osteen update it's not even quick um unfortunately joel osteen posts his easter sermon several weeks after easter as a result of it uh, rarely does joel osteen ever get to participate in our annual worst easter sermon of the year contest well it just it turns out that just last week he released Uh, This year's Easter sermon, and boy, is it a stinker. We're going to spend a little bit of time listening to it. And just so you know, uh, in hour number two, we're going to end the week off with two good sermons focusing on hearing the voice of Christ and the Word of God. So we're going to be listening to two good sermons along those lines. Um, lines. So without any further ado, we're going to first do our emergent update and uh, listen to Peter Rollins suggest giving up belief in God for uh, Lent. In, in other words, embracing atheism for Lent. So since we're doing an emergent church update, that requires us to do, well, this. of the sounds of the emergent postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Doug Paget. Playing oboe tonight is uh, Peter Rollins from Ireland. Yep, and that's Brian McLaren over there on the kettle drums. This is their homage to... Uh, well, Strauss's also Sprach Zarathustra. You'll notice that they've been freed from modernist definitions of notes and are now being led by the spirit. just brings tears to my eyes every time we play it here at Fighting for the Faith. Now, um, <clears throat> as I said, we're going back in time just a little bit, so I won't be using the uh, TARDIS or the, um, well, the uh, the DeLorean from Back to the Future. But earlier this year, um, going into the Lenten season, Peter Rollins of the <clears throat> Emergent Church, he has a channel on Vimeo entitled pyrotheology and which is a little confusing to me because you know it makes me think of the pyromaniacs and 
how much I miss Phil Johnson and, you know, things like that. But um, <clears throat> since you know, it's weird term, but it's really not pyro theology unless we're talking about burning down Christianity, which I think these guys are doing. Um, I want to play for you now um, this little video where, well, no joke, um, Peter Rollins is arguing that for Lent, Christians should give up belief and embrace atheism. Yeah, I know it doesn't make any sense, but here's Peter Rollins to explain. In contemporary Christianity, there's a real emphasis on belief. What's important is that you affirm a certain doctrine, a certain worldview about why we're here, where we're going, and what we should be doing in the meantime. In a sense, belief comes first. Somebody might ask, do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? that God wants to forgive you. And if you say yes to that, then the second thing is behavior. You pray and you repent. And then finally there's belonging. You enter into the religious community. This is very different from what we see in a family. Yeah, who cares if this is different from what we see in a family? Um, have you read the book of Acts? You know, what happens is that people are confronted with their sins, told to repent and to be forgiven and they repent and are baptized and and forgiven and um and then they're part of the church that's how it goes read the book of acts but see he's saying oh well see this is how it's done in a family <clears throat> well who says that how it's done in a family dictates how it's done in the church we continue a child belongs before there's any beliefs or behavior and then as the child grows they participate in the life of the family. They eat at the times when the parents eat. They go for walks, maybe on a Sunday afternoon, engaging in a ritual. And finally, there's... Yeah, and when children arrive in a family, they're generally not potty trained. I mean, can you figure out how we can then work that metaphor into what you're talking about here? Um, when are Christians potty trained? Belief. And at first, the belief is the same as the parents. Then it's often diametrically opposed. And finally, it comes to some sort of equilibrium with some agreement and some disagreement in adulthood. But within contemporary Christianity, belief becomes central. And this is what Pascal tried to bring to light. Yeah, no, uh, belief has always been central long before contemporary Christianity. It's, uh, it's central to biblical Christianity. That actually we emphasize belief at the expense of this shared life together. Oh, no. Yeah, let me back this up so you can hear that again in context. He's going to make the claim that we, you know, we're emphasizing belief in a way that, well, de-emphasizes or takes away this common communal experience that we can all have. But within contemporary Christianity, belief becomes central. And this is what Pascal tried to bring to light, that actually we emphasize belief at the expense of this shared life together. So in Atheism for Lent, we are attempting to help people experience some of the greatest critiques of Christianity as a world. So Atheism for Lent, he wants Christians to experience the most, <clears throat> well, important critiques of Christianity. So embrace Atheism for Lent. ...worldview as a belief system so that we might begin to conceive of Christianity in a deeper way. So you can conceive of Christianity in a deeper way by embracing atheism for 40 days. Not so much about the what of belief, but rather the how of belief. Over the 40 days of Lent, people are exposed to some of the greatest critiques of religion. 
by people like Freud and Nietzsche and Feuerbach. <laughs> Freud, Nietzsche, and Feuerbach. No joke. Those guys make up some of the major pillars behind the uh, fascist worldview. Right up to some of the contemporary new atheists. There's some video footage, some audio footage, a reading that they do every day. And four times during Lent, everyone gets together to talk about how those readings were experienced. So in Atheism for Lent, by questioning our own beliefs... I mean, seriously, if I didn't know Peter Rollins, I mean, I would have seen this video and thought, this is satire, this is a parody, right? You know, we're going to... We're going to experience atheism for Lent. The problem is this isn't satire. Through these religious critiques, we begin to question whether Christianity is about a mode of belief and begin to glimpse the idea that perhaps Christianity is about something deeper, about a mode of life. Yeah, maybe it's about something deeper like a move of life or something like that with real sappy music there at the end. So that was the entire the entirety of the video. Um, so unfortunately I didn't see this in time to practice atheism for Lent. Um, and well, now that I think about it, I won't be practicing atheism next Lent either. Um, in fact, I don't intend to practice atheism anytime between now and like for eternity. Um, cause atheism is the opposite of Christianity. Christianity is has a firm faith, belief, and trust in God, which is the exact opposite of atheism. Atheism has nothing to offer Christianity, or at least Christian piety, Christian meditation, or anything like that. So, you know, unfortunately, somebody who embarks on, um, you know, atheism for Lent might find himself or herself um, practicing atheism for life. That would actually be a bad result. (sighs) <sighs> Weird. Anyway, moving along. When I'm feeling lonely. That's right. Joe Osteen update. Sing along if you know it. All by myself in uncharted island in an endless sea. What makes me happy fills me up with glee. Those bones in my jaw that don't have a flaw. My shiny teeth and me. My shiny teeth that twinkle. Just like the stars in space I'm shiny teeth that sparkle Add beauty to my face I'm shiny teeth that glisten Just like a Christmas tree You know they walk a mile Just to see me smile Woo! Shiny teeth and me Yes, they're all so perfect Yeah, I gotta do verse two so white and pearly Brush gargle rinse A couple red mints My shiny teeth and me All right, that was like my worst rendition of singing along that song. Anyway, Joel Osteen has finally uh, posted his Easter sermon from this year, and it's entitled, You Have Resurrection Power. 
See if you can spot the problems with this thing. It's <clears throat> not all that hard to spot. And I'm really sad that he didn't get this posted earlier because I think he would have been a good contender for this year's worst Easter sermon. Uh, anyway, here's Joe Osteen. God bless you today. Such a joy to come into your homes. If you're ever in our area, please stop by. Be a part of one of our services. I promise you we'll make you feel right at home. But thanks so much for tuning in, and thank you again for coming out today. And I like to start with something funny. I heard about this man. He was on vacation in Jerusalem with his family when his mother-in-law suddenly died. He went to make arrangements to get her body back home. The consulate said it would cost $5,000 to have her shipped and $150 to have her buried right there in Jerusalem. He thought about it a moment, said he'd like to have her body shipped back home consulate said, wow, you must have really loved your mother-in-law. He said, no, it's not so much that. I just remember a case here many years ago when they buried somebody on the third day they arose and I can't take that chance. Hold your Bible up. Yeah, there's a little bit of Easter Sunday humor for you. Say it like you mean it. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. This is a competing creed to Christianity, by the way. This is not uh, a recognized creed within Orthodox historic Christianity. In fact, I would say this is absolutely contrary to the Orthodox Christian creeds. But we continue. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today, I will be taught the Word of God. I boldly confess my mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same. In Jesus' name, God bless you. I want to talk to you today about how you have resurrection power. Now, notice the emphasis on this Easter Sunday sermon here. You have resurrection power. He's not going to talk about Christ's victorious resurrection from the grave. Nope. Um, we're going to take, I can tell you exactly what he's going to do. He's, take, he's going to take a half sentence out of context and then build an entire theology on it. It isn't even a full sentence, but let me uh, let him get it out first. When you gave your life to Christ, God put a power in you greater than any power that you'll ever face. And we're not supposed to go through life. Did you notice that wrong emphasis there? He said, when you gave your life to Christ. Yeah, no, 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 no. Scripture teaches that Jesus gave his life for me. I didn't give my life to Jesus. Yeah, see, this is, this, is, this is backwards. Backing down in fear, intimidated, like we're at a disadvantage. This problem is so big. The medical report is so bad. Or, Joel, these people coming against me, they're so much more influential than me. I'm no man. The medical record, uh, report is bad. The, these people who are coming against me are so... Th- what are you talking about? That's for them. No, Romans 8.11 says, the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives on the inside of you. Now, he didn't actually um, quote it. Romans chapter 8. Now, notice he read verse 11. Now, let me read it to you uh, with the entire verse, because he didn't even give us a full sentence. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, notice it starts with if... He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Uh, <clears throat> and so what's really interesting about the way Joel Osteen quotes this, in fact, you can't see it, but if you were to see the video of this, it says Romans chapter 8, verse 11, 
dot, 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 the spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you, dot, dot, dot. So there's ellipses at the front end and at the back end of this. Well, when you see this is a standard quoting, you know, procedure. By the way, if if you're if you if you're quoting something and you leave out a part, you put ellipses in there to you know to make it clear that you're not giving the full um, quote, but that there's something before and something after. And generally, people will do that when the the stuff in the ellipses it is like a subordinate clause or something that is another point that's being built off of another of the main point and so they'll take that out so that the main point can be followed uh in a quotation it's, it's a standard um <clears throat> convention if you would but again notice what he does here let me read it to you again from this television screen it says romans 8:11 dot 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 the spirit that raised christ from the dead lives in you dot 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 so this Easter sermon from Joel Osteen is based not on an, an entire sentence. It's based on part of a sentence, and the front end of the sentence has been lopped off. The back end of the sentence has been lopped off. In other words, he's not telling you the whole thing. By the way, the in the front end, the dot, 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 that it's been, you know, the thing that's been cut off is the word if. <clears throat> and then at the back end, the entire rest of the verse is missing. So what we're going to do is we're going to apply our three primary rules for sound biblical exegesis and see if we can make sense of what's going on in this passage so that as we listen to this Easter sermon from Joel Osteen, we can determine whether or not he's telling us the truth or if he's, uh, well, pulling a fast one. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh, well, it's hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can not. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. So there you go. This is a section that's talking about the difference between uh, you know, pursuing the flesh or pursuing the spirit, living in the flesh or living in the spirit. And so... The, verse 11, the entirety of it reads, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, 
now that you know the context of what this passage is really talking about, I think it's important to note, like I've already noted, that Joel Osteen has taken out his exacto knife and lifted out only the words that he wants in order to make the main point of his Easter sermon. We continue. Most of us believe that Jesus has incredible power, but God turned it around and said, I'm putting the same power in you. It's a power so strong that death couldn't keep him in the grave. A power so strong that all the forces of darkness couldn't stop it. But here's the key. The only way to activate the power is to believe. You can't go through life thinking this situation is impossible. I'll never accomplish my dreams. So I can't go through life thinking this situation is impossible. I'll never accomplish my dreams. And you're getting this from Romans chapter 8 verse 11? It's as if the reason why you lifted out just that one section is so that you can insert your own theology. That's exactly what he's doing. This is eisegesis. This is not exegesis. This is a butchering and twisting of God's word. This passage doesn't say anything about people feeling like, oh, this situation's impossible or I'll never be able to live my dreams. (laughs) No, it's not about that at all been through too much that will keep you from your destiny have a new perspective yeah you don't want negative thinking to keep you from achieving and experiencing your destiny you are not weak you are full of resurrection power you may have had some bad breaks but you are not a victim actually no the text doesn't say that i'm full of resurrection power again listen if the spirit of him who raised jesus from the dead dwells in you the spirit Not resurrection power. This would be the Holy Spirit. This is talking about being indwelled by the Holy Spirit, not having resurrection power inside of me. You know, it's like, you know, the thing that keeps the Energizer bunny going. You are a victor. You are not supposed to back down from life, run from difficulties, run from things that are hard. No, stand your ground and fight the good fight of faith. The reason it's called a good fight is because the enemy has already been defeated. The keys to death and hell have already been taken away. Jesus said, the prince of this world comes, talking about Satan, and he has no power over me. You can say the same thing. The enemy has no power over you. What was that passage again? I don't recall you quoting it in context. That sickness cannot stop you. That bad break can't hold you back. Yeah, you know, like that, you know, cancer. You know, maybe you have a brain tumor. That can't stop you, he said, all the way to his grave. This sounds, again, this sounds like the uh, Christian science, uh, Mary Baker Eddy, uh, mind sciences, uh, cults kind of stuff. Those people can't keep you from your destiny. There is a power in you. Notice who this sermon, Easter sermon's about. It's about you, This isn't about Jesus and him being raised from the grave bodily. No, this is about you and your destiny and and not letting stinking thinking getting in the way of your destiny and, you know, and letting the report from the doctor, you know, get in the way of your destiny because you've got resurrection power inside of you. And yet Romans uh, 8, 11 says that you have the spirit dwelling in you. That is no match for any power that tries to stop you. Now, all through the day, this should be playing in our mind. I am powerful. I am strong. I am well able. I am a sinner. I have sinned. 
Um, I I am in need of Christ's forgiveness. Is that what you mean? You know, the, notice the I here. I am powerful. I am this. I am that. Yeah, this sounds a lot like you know the the the, the devil's uh, monologue from the book of Isaiah. I will not fear. I will not back down. I will not run and hide. I am not intimidated. Won't back down. Uh oh. I feel a fighting for the faith gratuitous musical interlude coming on. It's weird. It's as if Joel Osteen got his theology from Tom Petty. to the sermon. Sorry, sorry, just needed to do that. I mean, you, you, you can't just take a throwaway line like that and not go into a gratuitous musical interlude. We continue. I am not a victim. I am not at a disadvantage. I am full of resurrection power. Well, you say, Joel, I don't feel very powerful. I don't feel very strong. But you can't go by what you feel. You got to go by what you know. Your feelings may change every other hour. And what you're up against may look bigger, stronger, more influential, more powerful. That's okay. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. You have an advantage. is called resurrection power. And even though you may not feel powerful, you've got to put your shoulders back and start acting like you're powerful. Fake it till you make it. Really? That's... <laughs> Yeah, well, that's the, that's the best advice I've ever heard during an Easter sermon. You need to fake it till you make it. That's going to be the name of this episode of Fighting for the Faith. Just say, oh, man. Act like you're strong. Act like you're well-able. Act like you're more than a conqueror. Don't go through life intimidated when you have the most powerful force in the universe on the inside. Yeah, I got resurrection power on the inside. I think you get what's going on. The, the, the irony about listening to a Joel Osteen sermon is once you've heard the first five minutes of any Joel Osteen sermon, you've actually heard the whole thing. So you've pretty much heard it all. And, you know, the, the idea here, you got resurrection power, you are undefeatable, and if you don't believe it, you need to fake it. Till you make it. Yeah, that's some crazy preaching for Easter Sunday because he's not preaching about Jesus. He's preaching about you. And somebody who's preaching about you, especially on Easter Sunday, any Sunday, really, but it stands out like a sore thumb on Easter Sunday. Uh, that person's not telling you the truth and they're not, not really pointing you to Christ. They're pointing you to yourself and the thing you've got to do to save yourself. That's really what this is all about. You believing the right positive things and then thereby saving 
yourself. That's not biblical Christianity, folks. That's something completely different. And the reason why he snipped out that little one sentence from the Bible is so that he can make it say whatever he wanted it to say. And he succeeded. He succeeded in making it say whatever he wanted it to say. But the problem is is that anybody with half a brain knows you can't tell the truth about the Word of God via snippets of God's Word out of context and strung together. Crazy stuff. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to end the week off with two good sermons talking about hearing the voice of our shepherd, Jesus. Good stuff. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. come in. What was I just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico Pond with my trusty double-barreled nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. They're not limited to just games, mind you. Oh, no! I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You gotta see it to believe it.
Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to listen to a couple of good sermons to end the week off. Cleanse the theological palate, so to speak. Yeah, what's the point of having a word of God and Christ's words if you're going to just twist them rather than keep them? By the way, the Greek word tereo means to guard them, guard God's word. We'll talk about that in a second here. Let's do this right. Hang on. Here we go. And, well, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermons, two of them, uh, come to us via Living Word Lutheran Church, the Woodlands, Texas, and Holy Trinity Lutheran Church, uh, Hacienda Heights, California, respectively. We're going to kind of do it in that order. The first sermon is entitled... Whoever Keeps My Word, and it's by the Reverend Jeffrey Ware over there at Living Word Lutheran Church in the Woodlands, Texas. And it's a a sermon based upon the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 46 through 59, which I will read prior to uh, listening to the sermon. And then sermon number two comes to us via Holy Trinity Lutheran Church, and it's Pastor Swirla's sermon entitled, Lamb and Shepherd... And it is a sermon based upon the reading from Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. So don't worry, I will read both passages prior to actually playing the sermon, so let me kill the music. And uh, with that, we're going to uh, read the gospel text for Jeff Ware's sermon. Here's the gospel for that uh, sermon, uh, the gospel of John chapter 8, verses 46 through 59, which read, uh, Jesus speaking, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Well, the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered them, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps, the, the Greek word there is tereo, means to guard, guards, keep, guard, my word, he will never see death. So the Jews said to him, well, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. And your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Here is the Reverend Jeff Ware and his sermon, Whoever Keeps 
my word. Here we go. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation on our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In a world filled with death, what greater promise could there be than Jesus' words in our text today? Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Death is our greatest enemy. For many of us, death is our worst fear. And the most disturbing thing about death is its inevitability. It's not as if there's any way of avoiding it. Nothing is more certain than death. How gloriously amazing it is then that Jesus promises to those who keep his word that they shall never see death. This is the best news that has ever been announced to this world full of death. Hold to Jesus' word and you will never see death. And it's not as if we have to go looking for it. God has already given us His Word. There's nothing for us to do. No good works to be accomplished. Simply believe the promises of Jesus in the Word. Believe that you are forgiven. Believe that your sins are taken away. Believe that you have eternal life and you will never see death. Jesus' promise is as simple as that. But notice that He attaches His promise To the Word. The Word is important. We are totally dependent on the Word of God for life. God has chosen in His infinite wisdom to give eternal life through His Word alone. He promises to give eternal life in no other way. Therefore, the Word is our only lifeline in this world of death. God has sent us the greatest lifeline, His Word, His promises, His gospel message of forgiveness and life. And He says, simply believe it. Cling to it. Hold on to it. Hold on to that forgiveness. Hold on to that life. It's all yours, freely given. I've given you the way to escape death. Keep my Word. Hold on to that gift. And you will not see death. And yet, we do not take His Word seriously. And we despise His gift. If only we truly saw the danger we're in. If we only knew how tenuously our lives hang in the balance. Imagine yourself dangling from a rope above a bottomless pit. In that pit awaits the most awful torment, pain, and torture imaginable. And rising from that pit is the stench of death wafting over you in wave after wave. 
The only thing preventing your fall is that rope, your only lifeline. Now, in that desperate situation, how precious would that lifeline be to you? How much attention would you pay to that lifeline? You and I know that that lifeline would be the most precious thing in the world to you. Your entire focus would be on that lifeline. Nothing else would matter but that lifeline. And this is how precious God's Word should be in your life. It is the only thing that prevents you from falling to your eternal death in hell. How sad it is that God's Word so often is not the center of your life. At best, it's an afterthought. If you have time, if you have time, you'll read your Bible. If there's nothing else going on, you'll go to church. If you have time, you'll lead your family in home devotions. And yet you're always running out of time, aren't you? It's funny how you're still able to keep up with all your favorite TV shows, but you don't have time for God's Word. Our problem is that we do not realize that we are in precisely this kind of danger. We do not see the forces allied against us. We do not feel the threat of death and hell. We are sinfully secure, which is another way of saying that we are in denial. Our sins do not alarm us. Suffering and death around us do not alarm us. We do not feel our need, and so we cling less tightly to our lifeline, God's Word. This is what Jesus says of people like us. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Because of our self-security, we do not hold tightly to God's Word. We do not keep His Word. We do not cling to it for life. Therefore, we deserve what Jesus says. You are not of God. That is why Jesus says of those who do not keep His Word, you are not of God. This is God's strict judgment upon you and me. So what will you do with this just pronouncement? How will you react to Jesus' words about you? Some of you may react the same way the Jews reacted to Jesus in our text today. They reacted in anger because they could not stand what they were hearing from Jesus. Jesus threatened their self-security. And that's how it is for many people. They don't want to hear about their sin. They don't want to hear about their need. They don't want anyone telling them that they need help. They don't think they need saving. 
They are in denial of their true situation. And so they react in anger and they rage against the church and against Christian pastors and against Christ himself. And that is why some cannot stand the preaching in this place. Because here, your pastors preach as Christ preached. That is, we do not hesitate to reveal to you and show to you your sin. We do not hesitate to reveal to you the dangers that you face from the world, the devil, and your sinful nature. But many people don't want to hear that. They want to hear only good things about themselves. They want to be affirmed. They do not understand that Christ must first kill us before He makes us alive. These folks are too busy trusting in themselves. They're too comfortable living in denial. Thus, they fail to grasp the lifeline. They fail to keep the Word. They do not trust Christ. And these are the ones who will see death. They will taste death in all its fury. Some, however, will hear this righteous declaration, you are not of God, and they'll react differently. And this is the reaction that I pray you feel in your heart today. As you stand looking at yourself, seeing your lack of dedication to God's Word, seeing how unappreciative you've been, realizing how you've despised your only lifeline. And it is the reaction that says, Woe is me. I am lost. I am a sinner. I have despised His Word. I have not made His Word the priority in my life. I have not realized my danger. I've been self-confident, self-centered, and now I see. See that I hang over the chasm. I see that death surrounds me. It threatens to consume me, and that's what I deserve. Is there any hope for one like me? Is there any grace? And yes, dear friends, there is hope and there is grace. Because Jesus died even for those Jews who wanted to stone Him. Jesus died even for those who didn't take Him seriously. Jesus came for the weak, for the sinners, for those unable to save themselves which, by the way, is all of us. Even though you have despised His Word, He has never stopped giving it to you. He never stops giving you His Word. He never stops giving you His forgiveness. Jesus' words in our text are a call to repentance and faith. Repent and believe. That's the heart of faith. Eternal death comes only to those who think They don't deserve it. Eternal death comes to those who do not believe what God's Word says about their sin and its penalty. But for those of us who know that we deserve eternal death, for those of us who feel the weight of our sins, for those of us who have no hope or confidence in ourselves, for those of us who are completely unworthy of life, but trust in Christ. Life 
is what we get, not death. This is the voice of the Christian who says, I can't even hold on to the lifeline. So dead in sins and trespasses am I, I despise even God's way of salvation. My only hope is Jesus. In Him I trust. I will believe His promise in His Word that He came for sinners. If I count myself a sinner, I know He came for me. You can't keep His Word on your own. You must first, the Word must first claim you and keep you. In your baptism, Christ claimed you as His own. Through the Lord's Supper, Christ keeps you as His own. And that's what it really means to keep God's Word. Keeping God's Word means believing what it says. It means knowing that in your sin you are not of God, but also knowing that God has made you His own by the power of His Word. And this is most certainly not your work. Despite all your weakness, sin, and rejection, God has created faith in your heart And you hold to His promise for dear life. Jesus says, whoever keeps my word will not see death. And Jesus' promise still holds good for you. It means that your death has been transformed. And even though it's true that all die, for you, death has lost its sting. Your death will not be one of eternal suffering and separation from God in hell. That's what death really is. That's real death. But your death, the death of a believer, the death of one who trusts in Christ, will be but for a moment. Your death has lost its sting, such that the Scripture calls it falling asleep. Your death is no longer death as it really should be. Your death is now really just the gateway to eternal life. No credit and glory to you and me. All credit and glory and praise be to Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God who lives and reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Great sermon. Man, he did not hold anything back on the law. That was like the Lutheran version of sinners in the hands of an angry God. It had some of the same imagery, and yet it was packed with the gospel as well. That's how you do law and gospel, by the way. You preach the law in all of its flaming, thundering sternness. You disavow people of any hope of salvation based upon their own righteousness, even in part. And then you preach Christ and everything that he's done and salvation in him alone. Because that is the only thing that offers us sinners true comfort. And it is not comforting until you have nothing left in your hand. Nothing of your own righteousness. Only an empty hand that receives Christ. Mm. Good job. 
Okay, next sermon comes to us via Holy Trinity Lutheran Church, Hacienda Heights, Pastor Swirla's sermon based upon Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17, which reads, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and the Lamb, and before the Lamb clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and honor and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are those coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eye. Here's the sermon based upon this text entitled Lamb and Shepherd. Here's Pastor William Swirla, Holy Trinity Lutheran Church, Hacienda Heights. Here we go. In the name of Jesus, here again these verses from our readings. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Of all the images in the Bible, and the Bible is loaded with images, the most comforting and endearing, if not enduring, image is that of Jesus, the Good Shepherd. You see pictures of it all over. I have a statue on my desk. There are paintings of the shepherd carrying the sheep on his shoulders. The image of the good shepherd goes back to Psalm 23, the psalm of the shepherd king David, who wrote it as one of the Lord's flock. He had been taken from from, uh, shepherding the flocks of his father to shepherding the flock of God, Israel. The Lord is my shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd, the one who lays down his life for the sheep, the one who calls each of his sheep by name and knows them, the one whose voice is heard by his sheep and they follow him to eternal life. It's one of the great and wonderful paradoxes of the New Testament that the images of lamb and sheep come together into one in Jesus. He is both lamb and shepherd. He is both sacrifice and king. The one who dies and rises and the one who lords his death and his resurrection over us in order to save us and to bring us to the green pastures of eternal life. At his birth, shepherds left their flocks in the fields of Bethlehem in order to worship him. 
At his death, he is most lamb and shepherd, giving his life into death as the lamb of God and leading all of humanity through the dark valley of the shadow of death to eternal life. God so loved the world. God loved the world in this way, that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus says. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus came as God's lamb, the substitute, the sacrifice for humanity's sin under the law. He is the appointed sacrifice, the one that all the Old Testament sacrifices prefigured and anticipated. Every lamb in the Old Testament pointed to this lamb. Every drop of blood shed in the Old Testament to atone for sin pointed to this blood shed on the cross. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is how God loves this world, in the Lamb, with his blood. This is how God deals with the sin of the world, in the shedding of this Lamb's blood on the cross. This is how your sin and mine is washed away. By the blood of the Lamb. This is how the sinner stands justified before a righteous God in the Lamb who is their shepherd. This is how we are the sheep of the Lord's flock. This is how we are the people of his pasture in the Lamb who is our shepherd. When you think of shepherd, think of goodness and mercy. Think of sacrifice, the shepherd who literally lays down his life for the sake of the flock. He gives his life up for them. He washes them. He feeds them. He tends them. He protects them. Sadly, in our mechanized and industrialized way of farming and ranching, we don't have much of a picture in our day of what that good shepherd actually looks like. You know, the Palestinian shepherd is much different from the ranch hands and the farmers of our day. The shepherd of Jesus' day literally lived with the flock. He became one of the sheep. The sheep looked to him as one of their own. He gave names to each of them, much the way we do to our pets. Their foibles, their idiosyncrasies, he knew them. He gave them a name, and he had a special way of calling them, a special way of reaching out to them so that their ears would perk up when they heard their shepherd's voice, and they would follow no other. They'd never follow a stranger, but they would follow their shepherd anywhere. Even when he would lead them through dark and treacherous places, the valleys where the wolves would be on the cliffs looking down, hungry, waiting to snatch one of the sheep, and the sheep would look up in fear, they would still follow their shepherd and fear no evil because their shepherd was with them and they were safe. 
As comforting as that image of Jesus, the good shepherd, is, it also brings us to a rather discomforting thought about ourselves. We're sheep. It's one thing to sing, I am Jesus, little lamb. That's cute. Lambs are cute. Sheep are anything but cute. They're stubborn. They're prone to wandering. They're dependent. They're high maintenance. They're downright ornery. All we like sheep have gone astray. That's not cute. That's not a pretty picture. We are sheep. We are sheep who tend to stray, who need to be led by a shepherd, or we will perish. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter, the prophet said. We need to be guarded against the wolves. We need to be warded off the polluted puddles from which we drink, the poisoned weeds that we like to eat. We are utterly dependent upon our good shepherd for every good and perfect gift, and without him we perish. And that means the end of our notions of self-sufficiency, of independence, how we think we're dependent upon no one, that we're able to fend for ourselves, especially in spiritual matters. It's not even true for the things of this life, like daily bread. We don't fend for ourselves. We need one another. And it's even less true for our eternal life. We need shepherds. That's who Paul called together on the the shores, the Ephesian elders, the pastors of the Ephesian churches. And he called them overseers of God's flock, shepherds, pastors, watching over, guarding the flock of God. Alone, isolated, we are doomed Isolated in our sin, led as sheep to the slaughter, we are caught in a trap that we cannot free ourselves from. And we're facing this very long and dark valley called life. This life in which the fierce wolves and false teachers and false religions are the order of the day seeking to devour us. And our old Adam takes exception to all of this. He doesn't want to be a sheep. Doesn't want to be called a sheep. We don't like that. We'd rather be something more noble than a spiritual sheep. Maybe a proud peacock. Wouldn't that be nice? Fluffing its feathers for everybody to admire. Oh, how beautiful you are. Or a sleek cat. Fast predator. A loyal dog. A strong horse. A bull. Really, if you're going to be running animal metaphors, (laughs) anything but a sheep. Sheep who hear the voice of their shepherd. Luther said that every seven-year-old child knows what the church is. The church is a flock of blood-bought sheep who gather to hear the voice of their shepherd, calling them out of their baptism. Follow me. And they follow him. They hear his word. They hear his voice. He calls them by name. And he gives them eternal life. And he promises they will never perish. They may die, but they will never perish. Death cannot harm them forever. The devil is no longer a threat to them. Sin and even the law cannot touch one of the good shepherd's sheep. 
They go through the dark valley of this world hearing the voice of Jesus, their good shepherd who calls them. He's gone ahead of them through death and on to resurrection. He's risen from the dead and now like a shepherd calling his flock from the other side of the valley, he calls us to follow him. Follow him through death to life. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Some people think it means to follow his rules. But Jesus didn't give any rules. Moses gave rules. To follow Jesus means to die and rise with Jesus. Something that's already been declared done to you in your baptism. Your baptism says you're dead to sin. You're dead to the law. You're alive to God in Christ. To follow Jesus means to walk through the darkness and despair and danger of this present age, fearing no evil because you know that Christ is with you and that he will raise you. This week we had another reminder of the depravity of man the dangers of life, the fallenness of this world, in the form of a couple of homemade bombs made out of nails and ball bearings and a couple of pressure cookers that you can buy at Home Depot. Set off in a crowd, a crowd that was gathered to watch a foot race, the Boston Marathon. You would think that it would be safe, safe in the daylights of your own city, safe to watch a race and cheer on your family and your friends. It was supposed to be fun, a day off, but the darkness of sin, the depravity of our humanity, the insanity of this world intruded once again, and our notions of safety and security proved to be quite illusory. There is no safe place in this world, not even locked behind the doors of your own house There has never been a safe place in this world since the fall. The aftermath of the Boston incident was kind of noteworthy. A city completely shut down for a day. A manhunt, a couple of shootouts. One of the suspects is dead, the other in custody. We can't wait to hear from him. And the now obligatory religious service in the public square with the president as preacher in residence. And a big infusion of Boston bravado, as they can only do in Boston, with defiant calls to take back our city. And suddenly, everybody seems to have discovered the words to the national anthem again. And we're singing it out loud all together. This this is actually kind of a good byproduct. Corporate singing has returned to America. Maybe it will come back to the churches, too, where now we sing the national anthem all together in unison. And we don't have to listen to some pop singer mangle it yet again over the sound system. But what you will recognize in all of this, if you step back and look, is grief. Grief at work. The grief of death. The mourning over the reality of sin. The fallenness of this world where no one is truly safe. We may shake our fist defiantly and we may yell out our well-intentioned profanities at the wind, but like road rage, who exactly are we angry with? In this fourth week of Easter, Good Shepherd Sunday, 
the open and the empty tomb of Jesus stands as a war memorial to a battle that was fought once for all on a cross outside of Jerusalem. There the Lamb of God paid the price to redeem this sinful humanity of ours. That includes you and me and everyone. From a horrible and eternal captivity to sin and death, he became sin for us. Not simply took up our sins, he became sin, the very essence of our sinfulness. He died our death. His death is the death of us all. And the open and the empty tomb of Jesus testifies that death has lost its sting. The grave has given up its victory. Nothing in this life, not disease, not senseless acts of violence and terror, not disasters, man-made or natural, nothing can snatch you out of the good shepherd's hand because he has gone through death to life ahead of you. Exiled on the island of Patmos, far away from family and friends and congregation, John was privileged to see the view from above, the heaven's eye view of how things actually are. What John saw with his own eyes was defeat and despair and death all around him. He saw a church that was poor and fragmented, weak and scattered. He saw the forces of power and darkness seeming to gain the upper hand over Christ and to triumph. And yet for his comfort and for his strength, and for ours too, he was privileged to see the church in her glory. White-robed sheep gathered around the Lamb, who is their shepherd. Their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. The great tribulation of this life had given way to the glory of eternal life, the life that is to come. You see, in that vision in the Revelation, that's yours too. It's a vision of what is now by faith and not yet in your possession. It's the hope of resurrection and life that awaits you. And it's the joy of eternal life that's already yours by faith in Christ. This is the green pasture to which the Good Shepherd is leading you and has gone the way ahead of you. This is where you follow when you hear those words. Follow me. Listen again. Therefore they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Man, great sermon. It doesn't get better than that. It really doesn't. It's all about Christ. And and when you focus in on Christ, all the other details just snap right into place. And you're not being deceived. You're being fed. Being fed the truth. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. 
and anyone who believes in him has already passed over from death to life. You are saved, and the wrath of God is no longer on you. These promises are true. Those are the real promises of salvation in Christ, not the pie-in-the-sky-make-God-your-genie kind of stuff that we get from Joel Osteen and others. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Uh, until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>